Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not in the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. This week, I speak with Nick Fish, the current president of American Atheists. He is working hard to build coalitions to go up against the large, moneyed, and powerful evangelical political lobbies. What's more, Nick is the first openly gay president of American Atheists, and he is keen on building coalitions with other groups who have been targeted by evangelical Christians, such as the LGBT community. There's a prevailing culture of distrust and discrimination against atheists in the U.S., and many atheists seem to hide their beliefs, even in surveys. Surveys done by Gallup and Pew suggest that the prevalence of atheism in the U.S. is about 3 to 11 percent. But a recent study by the University of Kentucky found that with indirect indirect measuring methods, the number of atheists is actually much higher, closer to between 20 and 35 percent of the U.S. population. For comparison, those who identify as atheists in the United Kingdom is 39%. That indicates not only how prevalent atheism is, but also how much stigma, suppression, and discrimination atheists may feel in the United States. In our conversation, I speak with Nick about the ways he is going about fighting to change the narrative about atheists in America and getting non-believers a voice at the table in a country that is increasingly struggling to maintain the division between church and state. And now, here's my conversation with Nick Fish. Nick Fish, welcome to Reenchantment. Thanks so much, Daniel. I'm really glad to be here. Now, Nick, you are the current president of American Atheists, and I met you back a couple of years ago at NOSHA. No, not NOSHA. Sorry, that's the, that's the New Orleans, New Orleans <laughs> community, NanoCon, the Nashville Nons Convention. And I remember your talk and your you know, presentations there particularly struck me because you seem like someone who is most of all inter- interested in practical results rather yep. than infighting or being right uh, or kind of personal griefs. Uh, and that's something that I really respect, and it's something that I really think is is the most important thing uh, to be focused on. Because, as you, I believe, said in in a, in a talk, our 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 country is burning, and it's not a time to be licking our wounds or fighting over over petty differences. Right. So I want to. I'll give you a chance to introduce American Atheists as an organization, and maybe if you could talk a little bit about how your presidency at the organization has brought a kind of different vision or different strategies to those presidents that came before. Yeah, and, and like I said, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you and to, to talk about this. I, I think it is really important to both acknowledge where we stand today and, and to, think, to think carefully about what it is that our goals are. Our goals when we're talking about atheist activism and, and the type of work that groups like American Atheists do. I, I care very much about what's happening in this world and, and the, the ways that policy intersect with our day-to-day lives, our, our lives as 
atheists, our lives as as, as LGBT people, or as women, or as our allies, relig- religious minorities, or as people of color, uh, or of any number of different ways that religion can can come into and affect our day to day lives. And, and there are a lot of ways. There are ways that aren't necessarily bad <laughs> for a lot of people. There's people get things from religion that that have nothing to do with. The, the sort of supernatural side of things. People get community, people get a social support structure, and those are things that a lot of very successful atheist groups throughout the country will replicate and and find a way to fill a gap in, in people's lives that, that they have when they leave religion. Religious groups have very successfully turned their groups into something more, their churches into something more than just we meet on Sundays and talk about the Bible, just like how atheist groups that are successful do more than get together and talk about how God doesn't exist. They, they get together to find ways of giving back to their community. They find ways to get involved in civic activism and, 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 and civil society. They find ways to support one another when uh, times are tough, when, when we're dealing with things like we are now uh, in the midst of a pandemic uh, or in the midst of an economic recession. And, and that's, that's what we want people to do. That, that's a lot of what the local sort of grassroots activism that happens, we, we have historically perhaps thought too narrowly about what atheist activism is. And if we're serious about normalizing atheism and, and, and normalizing what it is to be an atheist in America, we have to find ways to normalize all those expressions of what we say uh, we believe, which is that this is one life that we have to live, uh, this isn't a dress rehearsal. Uh, this is our one shot at things. And so we have to do our best to make it as good as possible and to make it better for the next generation. And, and and part of that is being active and engaged. And the thing that I've been really heartened with over the last few years has been seeing just the, the, the number of people, the, the, the people who are dedicated and passionate about being involved in, in their cities and in their towns and in their states and nationally as well in making the country better and making in making society better mm-hmm. and that looks like different things for different people I, I don't want to pretend that atheists or non-religious people are a monolith they're certainly far from it mm-hmm. and I, I think that's what has been a, a really crucial part of the way that I've approached leadership has been giving people tools to go out there and do the things that they're interested in the things that they think are going to really make a big difference in their community and so we have groups who are going out there and protesting police violence, protesting economic equality, protesting taking away a woman's right to choose, protesting exemptions that put LGBT people at risk, protesting exemptions that uh, make it harder to adopt if you're a religious minority or an atheist or an LGBT person. People who are you know, interested in things like transit or <laughs> any number of just local kitchen table type issues that you don't normally think about as quote-unquote atheist issues. And, and what I've told people is that by virtue of you being interested in it, by virtue of you as an atheist thinking that it's important, it's now an atheist issue. And, and if you think for one moment that parishioners at the local Catholic Church worry about identifying themselves as members of that Catholic Church when they go to the town board meeting and say, I'm Alice and I'm here from the local Catholic Church. If, if you think that they are concerned with whether or not the Catholic Church has taken a position on, you know, whether or not there should be more bus stops in your community, you're, you're kidding yourself. They, they use it as a way to signal involvement and institutional power 
and to, to signal who they are and what they believe in and what a shorthand for their values. Yeah. And that's what I yeah. want atheists and, and non-religious people to do is to go out there and signal as, as part of being civically engaged, signal their values by talking about talking openly about being an atheist, being a humanist, being non-religious. Um, and yeah. it has the added benefit of, of indicating to people who don't even know that your group exists, that you're a group that is concerned with the future of your community, that you're getting out there and you're engaging in and getting active in actually changing things, which, yeah. I, which I think is really powerful. Um, yeah, and I think you have that very clear vision uh, of practical change. And yeah. politics, ultimately, is, as I view it, is a way for us to realize our vision of the world here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the, you, know, you, you mentioned earlier that a, part of, a core part of atheist belief is that we really only have uh, one shot at our lives. Yep. All we have is the here and now of this world, and we have to make the most of it. And with many religious traditions, there is this idea of, of an afterlife, that there is the perfection and, and heaven or Shangri-La or whatever it might be is waiting for us on the other side. But for you know, non-believers, there, there, there is no evidence to suggest that. And right. then the question is, well, okay, if, there is no, if there's no heaven on the other side of things, then how do we create and I, uh, 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 a world that is closer to our ideals here yeah. and now, and right. you know, um, for the although some people, many people might not like politics, it is ultimately a tool. It is a tool yeah. to realize these visions in the actual world, and I think that that the in particular the strategies that you're using, they seem. They seem, you know, more grounded in, in the heart, and more grounded in in emotion, and I think, and I say that in, you know, the most positive way because, uh, you know, as you've pointed <laughs> Not out, as an attack, <laughs> right? As 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 you've pointed out, bludgeoning people with facts is not going to make them change their minds. Atheists have tried that in the past, and it's right. it's not productive. So yeah. I want to I want to ask you particularly about one strategy that you've been promoting. It's this idea of telling telling atheist stories, putting a human yeah. face on atheism. Uh, could you right. tell tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the thing that you just mentioned that you just mentioned about um, thinking that if we have the best argument, that we're necessarily going to win. Like I don't want to I don't want to undercut the importance of thinking critically and, and thinking step by step and having good answers to these questions because they, they are important, but it's not enough in of itself. Uh, we have to appeal to emotion. We have to appeal to storytelling. We have to use that as a tool in, in our in our toolkit. And it's frustrating when people say, well, we just need to use logic and reason and, and that'll get us all the way there. And if you sincerely believe that, then look at the data, look at, look at what the data indicates works and in the, in the case and the, the truth is the data indicates that using just the data to convince people doesn't work it's not enough it's, it's a good starting point it's it's necessary for things like policy making to, to make sure you're showing your work that you're not just living by the anecdote but you're but you have to go beyond that you have to show how 
these things affect real people. And uh, you it's been to, a you really, have to use the anecdote. Use it you have to use the, you, you do have to use the anecdote. Yeah, you, you can't just it's the anecdote by itself isn't enough. The data by itself isn't enough. It's that synthesis of the two things that that really make a lot of uh, very powerful social social change. Mm-hmm. And what we've tried to do is is to tie that into our work. So it's not it's not just saying religion is bad. It's saying here's how religion, the intersection of religion with this particular public policy is harming children or is harming these people. And here's a person who can speak to that. So a good example of this is something like child marriage. Hmm. Um, In the United States, I think a lot of people don't realize that child marriage is still common in the United States. That that marriage under the age of 18, it's not just two 17-year-olds that are going and getting married. It's, you know, a 15-year-old who is being married off, a 15-year-old girl, it's almost inevitably a girl, um, who's being married, married off by her family as part of a religious thing, as part of a religious sect uh, that practices that type of marriage, an arranged marriage. And is um, this this is illegal? I'm assuming. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's not. not. And that's and, and it's not in it's not in enough states. There are a couple of states that have banned marriage under 18 with without exception. And we've been part of coalitions working on that. But yeah, people think that this is like some problem in in a far off land, and it's not. This is a problem. In, uh, until recently in rural Pennsylvania or in Wyoming or in Louisiana or Michigan, where people are, uh, parents are arranging marriages for children as young as 14, marrying them off to oftentimes much older men as part of religious practice. And many states have adopted bans saying, okay, yeah, you can't get married when, when you're 14. Uh, you, you, you have to wait until you're 18 unless you have a religious reason or unless your parents say it's okay. I don't, uh, speaking purely for myself, I don't think at 14 I was actively thinking about getting married. Uh, I don't know that I, that was anywhere near the top of my list of priorities. And and the, the fact is that most of these marriages um, that, are, that are happening, that are underage, that are under 18, are happening for religious reasons. And they're happening oftentimes at the insistence of parents. And so these quote unquote safeguards don't actually protect children. The United Nations classifies child marriage as a human rights abuse. And we, we have stories of people and we've we've told them in through our social media and through our magazine and when we're advocating for these issues and, and these bills to, to, to clamp down on this and to close these loopholes of women who were married off at 14 or 15, who in just a short, a, a short amount of time in a couple of years say, this is terrible, I need to get out of this. But because they're under 18, they're not able to access social services that are intended for women who are fleeing abusive marriages. And that's, that's the truth about these marriages, is they are often uh, abusive in, in any number of dimensions. Yeah. And so they try to flee, but they're 17. And because they're 17, they can't access the court system in the way that an adult can. They can't apply for food stamps for their kids that they've had in, this, in the short time of this marriage. They can't apply for housing. They can't, they can't stay at a women's shelter because they're under 18. Their their spouse is their guardian in some ways, which makes uh, for a a big problem when you're talking about an abusive marriage and trying to escape from that. And especially if you're talking about an insular religious community where most of the family, all of their social safety net is wrapped up in this particular religion that they're trying to leave, that's where things get very difficult. And so by clamping down on this and, and telling those stories of this particular woman who had this experience, and we've worked with a group called Unchained at Last that, that works exclusively on this issue. And it's primarily made up of women who have escaped the, these types of marriages and needed to give back, wanted to give back 
to help make sure that no one else has to go through this. Yeah. And and elevating those voices that can speak very forcefully about the problem. It's one thing to say that a hundred and something thousand child marriages have happened in the United States since two thousand and since the mid two thousands or the early two thousands. It's another to say that and also here is Freddie Reese, who herself escaped this type of marriage when she was when she was young, went back to school, got a, got a degree, first first woman in her family to get a degree, and as part of leaving, she was shunned from her community. Her, her children were taken away from her. They were f- just all these t- terrible things. And she went back and said, I, I can't allow this to happen to anyone else. I'm going to start this group. I'm going to tell these stories. And here's where this type of religious privilege intersects with public policy in a way that puts people's lives at risk. And we can show that educational attainment and, po- and mental health issues and all sorts of problems happen when, when, when women are forced into these types of marriages. We can, we can use that, we can show that data, and it's compelling, but it's even more compelling to pair that with a person who can, who has lived that, who has gone, who has walked that path. Yeah. yeah. And that's, 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 that's crucial. And it's been successful. We've, we've managed to get three, three states have, have clamped down on these child marriages in just the last couple of years. Uh, after amazing. years of advocacy with, with no movement, we've gotten, I think it's Pennsylvania, New, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Nevada, I think, and I might have one. Connecticut or New Jersey, one of them that got most of the way there, and then we have to work to pass it again. But at least three states have passed this just in the last couple of years. So that's amazing, and, and a huge congratulations to to you on that. It, it, it's striking to me just just how powerful stories and narratives like these are, because as atheists, you know, we don't have uh, grand overarching myths. We have uh, the story of that science uh, tells us, which is constantly evolving, but it doesn't have human beings at its center. We instead have our narratives. We have personal narratives and we have our stories. And I I often listen to uh, this Unitarian Universalist minister, Reverend Kim Crawford at the Arlington Street Church in Boston. And the the reason I love listening to, to her is she can use story in such uh, a beautiful way to break down barriers between people, to show the humanity uh, of different groups, of allowing the, the alchemy of, 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 of empathy to, uh, to really transform people's hearts from, from one thing to another. And you know, it's, stories are analogous to magic in the sense that magic is mind affecting matter. Stories are not physical objects, but they affect the world, and they infect it in seemingly invisible ways. And I say this not to, not to you know, say that stories are magic, but to emphasize the power of storytelling, and, and also to, to emphasize that much of the time when people are talking about magical or enchanted things, they're usually talking about psychological effects, sociological right. effects. And being able to harness these these effects that have been a core to human society and civilization for thousands of years, I think that is essential to moving us forward and to to winning these battles against these organizations and religions that know very well how to use them to their advantage. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing that I, I try to remind people of is you know there are people who are very cautious around 
using the, those tools, using using the same methods of religious groups. They're just they're very suspicious of, of anything that looks like, sounds like, walks like, quacks like church, right? Or or religious. They, they view it pot- potentially as manipulative. And instead of and there and that word carries a lot of baggage. I mean, we are trying to be evocative. We are trying to manipulate the way you're thinking about something, but there's there's something that separates us from the way that other groups are doing that, and and that's that we're cognizant of the biases that that does introduce, and we're cognizant of not distorting the story in such a way to wield power or to preserve our power, rather it's to, to protect equality. And that's something that really separates those of us that are advocating on this side from what many entrenched religious groups do, where they, 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 they use this as a weapon, they use it as a way to cement their own privilege rather than as a way to protect equality. And, yeah. and that, yeah. that's, that's very different. And, and I think it's important to recognize that and to say, even if we could do X, Y, or Z that would gra- vastly increase our power or would really solidify our, our hold on people, we don't want to because it's, it's not in line with our values. Right. Uh, we don't right. want to use children as tools for this. We want to make sure that if, if we're talking about issues that affect kids, that they understand what that means and, and how it's being presented and that they're on board and they understand and that we have their consent. Like that's, that's really crucial rather than saying, than, than like scaring children with stories of eternal torture. That's not how we, we want to do things. Like that might be an effective way of recruiting, but it, it's, it's, disgusting and it's terrible sure, sure. and it's it's horrifying and, and so we don't want to do that right uh, you mentioned this uh, the idea of uh telling stories as uh manipulation and mm-hmm. if you're if you're doing it in in this way to misrepresent something or to right. to, to solidify your own power that's one thing but right. s- telling stories can also be revelation it can show a truth about something that you can't yeah. see with just numbers for and that's another word that has a lot of baggage right revelation manipulate all of these yeah. people here and they're like oh my gosh what <laughs> right 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 oh as you can tell i i don't have those um those those inhibitions. I, I, I use these words, and well, I trust that my listeners know that I'm using them in the uh, metaphorical uh, sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and 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 but it, it's something that we have to grapple with, right? And it's something that there are people who have experienced genuine trauma at the hands of religion, and so like I understand the inclination to be just highly suspicious of these types of of this type of communication style, right? Of, of talking about things in this revelatory way. I understand why people, there, there's an audience of people that, that, that are on our side that agree with us, that the moment they hear it, it's kind of a defense mechanism. Right. And right. I, I want to be cognizant of that. And it, again, it's something that because we are good people, <laughs> I think most of us are, very, are good people. We try to do, we try to do what's right. We try to do, we do our best, right? Which is all we can, all we can really do. Yeah. But we're thoughtful about it. And, and we're thoughtful about the, the, the concerns of the people who express express this frustration or this unease about it, we don't just barrel ahead and say, well, this is the doctrine, get with the program, like some religious groups might. And and, and because of that, and be, because we're willing to engage with that thoughtfully, it, it takes a little bit longer sometimes to craft these stories and to get people um, 
on board or to, to show them what we're trying to talk about. And we have to tailor our approach. And sometimes there are better messengers than others. And different approaches work for different people. But uh, a lot of what my job is, is kind of marshalling that and, and trying to figure out what the best approaches are and realizing that there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to any of this. Right, um, right. That, that there are differences and individual struggles that we have to work with and struggles that are unique to our community. And I don't want to pretend for one moment that the, the feelings and the frustrations that people have about their experiences with religion aren't real and aren't fine and aren't, aren't completely appropriate to have because... I, I, I was not really raised in a religious household. I, I do not have that experience of shunning or being forced out of family because of because of my lack of religion. But, but uh, many but people many didn't. people have. Yeah. Yeah. And and so hmm. I, I have to listen to people when they tell me this is a really challenge like what you're saying right now is really raising my hackles <laughs> from 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 my experiences in church. And so I need to like take a second. And, yeah. and and so what it says to me is, all right, well let's let's make sure we're calibrating this appropriately so people aren't being aren't being you know uh, yeah. aren't facing that trauma in yeah. that same way and yeah. they, that they feel they feel heard and recognized. Hey folks, it's time for another fake ad where I tell you about something I care about and not something that I've been paid to care about. This week's fake ad is about fake chorizo. In honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month, I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite pork alternatives, fake chorizo. This is something you can find at Trader Joe's and at most local supermarkets. It's really, really fantastic. I put it on my tacos, my burritos. You know, I sometimes feel guilty um, coming into uh, the vegan game so late because there seems to be all of these great alternatives that now exist for traditional meat and animal-based products. Uh, and it's just incredibly easy to make the switch. Next time you're at the supermarket, look out for some uh, fake chorizo. Give it a try. It is delicious. And in some cases, I think it is better than the original. And also, these fake ads are possible because of my Patreon supporters. Help keep this podcast ad-free and sustainable for me to make each week by becoming a patron. You'll get access to patron-only content like short videos, extra material from my conversations with guests, and even whole bonus episodes. A big shout-out to Catherine from Connecticut for signing up to become a patron. She and I met back at Yale when I was part of the Swing and Blues community, and we listened to a good number of podcasts on long road trips together with friends. And ironically, she's now listening to mine. And now, back to the show. Do you have any specific uh, stories about how atheists are stigmatized in America, how family rejection or, or a loss yeah. of friends or, or discrimination, sometimes even harassment or violence? Do you have any specific examples of that? Yeah, we do. I mean, we, unfortunately, we have lots of them. American Atheists did a, a, a this large data collection project. One of the things that is really a struggle with our community is it's hard to point to some of the hard data about that type of experience. We have pretty good data, we have pretty good demographics about atheists and non-religious people, the nuns, so on, mm -hmm. from groups like Pew and PRRI and, and other religious research groups that are out there. What we don't have are specific data about the experiences that non-religious people have, that atheists have in places throughout the country. And so we, we wanted to fill that gap. And we did a very large data collection project called the U.S. Secular Survey. Our initial thought was to get about 100 or uh, 10,000 responses, 
somewhere between five and 10,000. We, we ended up passing 10,000 in about the first five or six hours of the survey going live. We had originally planned on having it open for four weeks or so. We ended up closing it in two weeks, less than two weeks, I think 10 days, with about 35,000 responses. Wow. Um, and of those 35,000 responses, something like a third of them gave us additional qualitative data. So not just answering the questions, but filling out some open-ended experiential questions where, they, where we asked, you know, Talk about talk about your experiences in X, Y, or Z. Wow! sounds like it sounds like there there's so many people that want to be heard. That, yeah, that was exactly what it was. Is we just so many people had a story to tell, and we can literally spend the next year, few years, grappling with all this data, and we we are going to be spending the next few years <laughs> grappling with some of this data and and doing narrowly focused reports on certain subpopulations. In that we we released our first report of it that was sort of a summary of it uh, that focused in on stigma and discrimination and the way that people are the, the way that people face those in different parts of the country and, and the effects that that stigma and discrimination have on people that was some really there were some really eye-opening figures in there you can get some more information about that at secularsurvey.org um, yeah and I'll, I'll include but, a link to that as well in the episode description but, but what we found but what we found was that the t- if people are experiencing discrimination especially familial rejection workplace harassment educational discrimination i mean the the numbers there were were surprisingly high the number of people who reported that type of negative experience and that type of stigma but for the people who experienced it the the outcomes that, that they reported were much worse. Mm. So they reported lower educational attainment, they reported lower, uh, or they reported higher instances of depression and other mental health issues just related to stress and, and, and that stigma. And being a member of a community um, was actually an insulating factor mm. for people who experienced, who screened positive for depression. So if you were a member of a national secular atheist organization, it reduced the likelihood that you would screen positive for depression by something like 35%. If you were a member of a local group, the numbers I think were, it was similar, but I think it was about 25% less likely to screen positive for depression. And so having, like being part of a community and feeling like you belonged somewhere was an insulating factor for that rejection that you experienced, that people experienced in their day-to-day lives. And then the distinction and the, the difference between the, 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 the reported discrimination and stigma that people experienced between, it wasn't so much north-south or red state, blue state, it was more urban-rural, but also a little bit of red state, blue state. And the, the sort of perceived religiosity of their states and their community is what really was the driving factor. So just how visible religion was as part of the day-to-day life that drove a lot of the, the, the difference that we saw in different areas of the country. People who are African-Americans, black atheists, ex-Muslim atheists in particular, uh, experienced much higher rates of familial rejection mm. and even physical violence, threats of physical violence because of their atheism, yeah. uh, which was an interesting data point. The number of people who reached out to us as part of the, and, and who shared their story as part of the secular survey and who have reached out after the fact, who have said that leaving church, the reason that they stayed in church was because they had a place to go when uh, they needed help with their kids, you know, and that, that's one of the big things is we're talking about single parents who have two kids and when something comes up at work, they're forced to choose between potentially losing their job or taking care of their kids, okay. forced to choose between putting food on the table in the, you know, sort of proverbial sense of having a paycheck versus literally putting food on the table by cooking dinner. 
Yeah. And that that's a choice that they're forced to make because they don't have anywhere to turn except church. And so they know that if they need a little bit of help there, that they're that that's who they're able to rely on. And yeah. so they tell us they there were some stories in there where people told us that they stayed in church for years because that they didn't think they could get that anywhere else until they found another this, this particular atheist group in their in their area. And because they found that group the, the, the thing that kept them in church was not the church stuff, or that was not the religion stuff. It was the church. It was the community. It was the people. And so they found something to replace that, and that's what got them to come out and kind of say, yes, I'm an atheist, and because I found some other way of meeting this very basic physical need of, for my kids, right? Like, that that's a crucial part of it, is are your needs being met? Yeah. And, and it seems like there are so many people that are atheists that don't believe but that stay in the pews that stay in their communities for exactly that reason there are you get you get help social help in some cases maybe even financial help but definitely help with your with your children just with with time and i guess that's that's a crucial part of building a community that i guess most most atheist groups don't really focus on my impression at least is that there's a big focus on the you know, intellectual part, bringing in speakers, like thinking about these issues, and and maybe less focus on on the human part, or, you know, what happens yeah. around the coffee table afterwards. Right. So, and you you that's another big strategy that you've been pushing for is the encouraging community formation among non-believers. So, say a little bit about how you're doing that, and and what what is what is so important about having those communities. Yeah, that we asked people as part of the survey, and like I said, data is very important to kind of drive where we're going to be putting money and how we need to focus our resources, our finite resources, and to, to just give people some idea of like what's needed and what they would like. The the single biggest thing that was just stunning to us was the the number of people who reported that they wanted resources for kids, people with children, so resources for the, that particular community. We asked people, like, which of the following were important to you for your local secular group, your local atheist group to offer, and which of the following have you taken advantage of or, or have been offered and you have used? Twenty, More than 20% said social opportunities, so just getting together and meeting people, which is really important in, when you kind of feel alone in, in some of these states. Debates and lectures was the other one that was up there. I think that was almost 20% as well. And people are interested in those things. But they also reported high levels of interest in volunteer opportunities, in activist and in, in advocate opportunities. Actually, the same number of people or the same percentage of people in our survey reported interest in those things as the debates and the lectures and the things like that. Mm-hmm. But more people, there was more opportunity to take part in debates and lectures because that's the type of programming that is offered by more groups. And so what our research shows is that if, if groups offer these types of volunteer activities and these types of opportunities for engagement in their in, in their community, people will take advantage of it. The one that really stood out, though, was programming for people with kids, mm-hmm. whether it be childcare during meetings or, or events that are tailored specifically for people with kids and families. Almost 75% of people said they would be interested in that compared to 60% for basically every other area of programming. Wow. So you have this just massive unmet need that if you're if you're looking to start a group and you're looking to attract a diverse age representative group including people with family with families the single most important thing you can do is provide diverse programming to meet those needs but 
the if you had to pick like one thing that you could offer as a uh, thing that sets your community apart, it would be programming for people with 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 children. Wow! And and it, and it's it's just it's not being met, unfortunately. And so that's what we're encouraging people to do. Yeah, and you've been you've toured the country and visited mm-hmm. and spoke spoken with a lot of these different communities, communities of non-believers and atheists and uh, yeah. I'm guessing humanists too. Who is successful uh, and why? Yeah. One, some really, there are some really fantastic groups out there. I'll give a shout out to the Central Florida Free Thought Community, CFFC, run by Jocelyn Williamson and David Williamson, I believe are the two. I think they're the, I don't know what their positions are, but they are the people that I have worked with most closely in those groups. And they do a fantastic job by integrating all these different areas of programming. So they have social activities, they have groups like a book club, and they'll do I, I think they've done like hiking and biking and running and different little spin-off events mm-hmm. for different people with different interests in the groups that are purely social. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not running around if you're, if you're part of the running group, and this is another one that groups like Tri-State Freethinkers in Kentucky or CORE, the Community of Reason in, in Kentucky, or Greater Humanists of Greater Phoenix, I can't remember the acronym exactly, but the Humanist Group in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Like These are all groups that have been highly successful that have just huge groups of membership, WASH, Washington Area Secular Humanists. And the common thread through all of them is they provide diverse programming that isn't focused on just like one meeting a week or one meeting a month or anything like that. They have these kind of impromptu additional social opportunities for people where it's not intended to represent every single person with every single event. Mm-hmm. But if you're a person who wants to read more and, and pick up some some really great fiction or nonfiction, they have a book club. If you're a person who loves knitting, they get together and they have a knitting group. If you're a person who enjoys running and you, you want to train for that 5K, they have the Reason Runners or whatever they whatever name they've given to the group where they get together and they they go running mm-hmm. and and you, you have some like social accountability there if you're someone like me who is less likely to, <laughs> to go out and go jogging sure, sure. Uh, you, you you have some you have some accountability there but then they also add in the lectures and the debates and they invite government officials to come speak about what's going on in their community they invite members of the school board they invite the local county clerk to talk about voter registration uh, and then they invite coalition partners to come in and talk about a particular issue that is prominent in their community. So they partner with the local LGBT group to come in and talk about the the latest human rights ordinance in their town mm-hmm. and what they can do to help. And then they go out there and they turn that speech, that 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 talking into activism. Yeah. And it feeds back into itself and you can build you can build a, a lot of good relationships that way. And you even can partner with those groups, you partner with the local P flag to have a social event. And that shows that you can kind of cross-pollinate your groups so that people who are members of PFLAG, who that's their primary identity, that's the thing that they, that's the place where they find companionship and, and, and friends, and they and, can come into your group and, and you P, can go to theirs. And PFLAG is what? Parents, parents and friends of, I, they, I think it's one of those things like KFC where they, they got rid of the acronym where now it's just PFLAG, but it was a, it was a uh, support group for the parents and family of lesbians and gays i think was the original acronym but it was sort of like a it was a support network for people whose kids had come out as lgbt and they wanted to be supportive and they wanted to provide they they have a common experience and Mm -hmm. they can sort of share the challenges which is very similar to what many of our atheist groups do is they have a common experience of leaving religion and they can kind of have a 
a gripe session and then move into the supportive talk of like, here's how we're getting through it. And then let's just hang out and have a good time. Right. Um, right. And then, and then the last part of that is these groups are, and, and you can certainly talk with uh, CFFC about this. They, they have provided programming for, for young people, for, for kids, uh, for teens, uh, so that they have some place to go that isn't just like steeped in religion, mm-hmm. but it's also a great way for, for, ki- for young people to make friends. I mean, one of the really common stories that we heard in our in our in our data collection was people were very concerned about their kids that, that their kids they have advised their kids to not proactively share that they're non-religious because their kids have faced bullying and have faced stigma and have been ostracized in in, the, in their schools and their mm. public schools because of it and so they kind of tell their kids yeah if somebody asks you a direct question don't shy away from it but maybe don't proactively say it because it's going to it's really hard for you uh, and they yeah. say that that's really difficult for them to tell their kids, hide part of who you are, or don't be fully honest about who you are. But right, it's kind of the reality right. of living in rural Indiana. That's Yeah, that's the and so, so many people, and like myself, I didn't realize this growing up in urban Boston, that that is something that is, is, is so difficult for so many atheists in this country, and around the world, too. Talk about other countries with immensely religious and, and strictly religious cultures. And I think that's also why it's so important to band together with those uh, who have experienced similar similar sorts of discrimination or uh, marginalization. You mentioned partnering with LGBTQ organizations, but also with religious or denominations that have similarly faced discrimination sometimes from yep. the same place christian evangelical uh, evangelical groups and mm-hmm. evangelical politics it's we have to be able to you know uh, put aside our differences not only among non-believers but also to to really reach out and and forge strong alliances with yeah. with everyone and I'm, and I'm much more interested in people's values than I am with their theology. Hmm. Um, and if people share their share values with me, I'm happy to work with them, regardless of what their particular religious belief is. The, the challenge that a lot of us are, are grappling with right now is that this administration in particular, and certainly Christian nationalists writ large, they, they use religion as a shorthand, or they say, we're, we're a nation of believers. They don't mean that. They don't mean that everybody who believes in something is part of the club. They don't even mean that all Christians yeah, are part of the club. If you believe what we believe, our particular brand you of Christianity. very narrow definition of Christianity, uh, then you're part of the club. And they, and they try to link that, that expression of Christianity with Americanness, which is very dangerous. Hmm. And when they say that America is a Christian nation, they don't mean the Christianity of... of, of they mean the Christianity of Jerry Falwell Jr. and, and Robert Jeffress. Sure, and sure. Even if you're Ralph even Reed. if you're a Catholic, that's not the Christianity that they mean. Yeah, and and there's a and Catholics are a sort of interesting one as well because half of Catholics are have this sort of nationalist view of Christianity, and half of them don't, and the half that don't tend to be kind of on our side on a number of issues, including on access to abortion. Uh, there's a group called Catholics for Choice that is, is a very well-resourced, very involved activist group out there that is very committed to ensuring that people have access to contraception, even if they themselves, and, 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 and abortion, even if they themselves would probably not go out and have an abortion, they want to, they don't believe that their position should be to tell uh, tell people that they they themselves can't have uh, abortion or use contraception, mm-hmm. and so we find common cause with groups all all the time. But 
we don't walk into a meeting with Catholics for Choice and say, hey, I really disagree with the Pope about this, that, and the other thing. And oh, by the way, it's really, it's really a, d- a d- disgusting fact that your uh, denomination is still moving money around to not pay not to not pay for the the crimes of these priests that have been abusing children for years. Like we don't, you don't lead the meeting with that, right? We we we're still able to criticize the Catholic Church for all of its systemic failings and for all of these problems. And by the way, if Catholics, most rank and file Catholics, agree with you uh, on that point and are disgusted with the way that their denominations handled these these issues, but we find ways to work together, and and that's what really matters. And this administration has really demonized Muslims, has demonized, certainly demonized atheists and, and, and militant secularists is, is Bill Barr's, the, the attorney general's most common target uh, for discrimination. And, then, and then, then they turn around and say that they're in favor of religious freedom. No, they're not. They're in favor of the freedom to discriminate, the freedom to ignore the law, the freedom for white evangelical Christians to have as much cultural power as possible. Yeah. And, and again, when they say America is a Judeo-Christian nation. The Judeo is sort of tacked on there in sort of a weird way. It's kind of duct taped onto the side. They don't they don't mean that. And when they say Christian, again, they don't mean the Christianity of the of of Reverend Dr. William Barber from North Carolina. They don't mean the they don't mean the the Christianity of Al Sharpton. They don't mean the Christianity of the, the poor people's campaign or the Christianity of Barack Obama or apparently the Christianity of Joe Biden or the Christianity of even people who are who might agree with them on abortion or, or whatever, but are not so not so keen on the strict tie of you have to be a Christian to be an American, sure, uh, which sure. is, is not just being implied. It's being said out loud by by, by some some politicians in this country. And that's very concerning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really troubling development. But it's been going on for for years. I mean, Ted yeah. Cruz said, if you're if you don't pray every morning, you're not qualified to be commander in chief, which is not a great look for somebody who. <laughs> claims to care about religious freedom yeah yeah so so i guess kind of looking at all the different strategies that we've talked about there seems to be i sense there is a kind of new playbook for atheists that is maybe different than what has been going on in years past instead of kind of the very intellectual we are right because of a b and c a reliance on storytelling uh, about illustrating our the the harms that and the suffering that people undergo in an emotional way, yeah. and challenging stereotypes about who atheists are. Just just like if you talk with a, a rank rank and file Catholic, they're in disgust with the way the Catholic Church has operated in some ways. And so if you talk with a regular atheist, they're not angry and uncharitable and dogmatic they're a regular person it's yeah. it's kind of breaking breaking down these stereotypes and op- opening those who who may not know atheists to yeah. to, to to this idea that oh we're we're just like everyone else and we deserve yeah. as you said in other places a, a seat at the table and that combating those stereotypes i think is what local community groups can do best. The unfortunate part about the media landscape now is that unless you're saying something really controversial or or screaming your head off or sticking your foot in your mouth, as the case may be, it's not going to get covered in, in the same way that other stories will, which is kind of disconcerting for those of us that want to put a positive light on things. But combating those those stereotypes of atheists and, and non-religious people as disengaged from their community or as aloof as not having anything to live for 
If, if, you're, if you don't believe in anything, how can you possibly care what happens? It's like, well, that actually, it's the other way around. If, if I don't believe that there's an afterlife, I, I'm forced to care much more about what happens right now because that's the only shot I have. Right, um, right. And so combating those stereotypes by that sort of engagement, that, that involvement in the day-to-day, -day, th there's this quote uh, from Madeleine Murray O'Hare, which was in, in her Supreme Court brief for when, when she sued to, to stop the mandatory Bible readings and the way that she defined being an atheist it wasn't just, we don't believe in God and that's it, which I think is too narrow a focus, right? Like we've, we've sort of used that as a rhetorical trick in the past of just saying, well, if you don't believe in God, you're an atheist. That's the only thing that being an atheist means. Well, it, it means more than that mm -hmm. for, for all of us or for the vast majority of us. And, and what she said was, an atheist believes that a hospital should be built instead of a church. An atheist believes that a deed must be done instead of a prayer said. An atheist strives for involvement in life and not escape into death. He wants disease conquered, poverty vanquished, and war eliminated. Mm, and that's beautiful. that was that that was a lot of what her version of American atheism was about. And that's if people people go back and read some of what she wrote and and what she was talking about at the time was that articulation of what American atheism was, and that's why the group is called American Atheists. Is that was the idea that there was something more than just this one thing we agree on, which is. A lack of belief in God, and and this additional commitment to building a better society, mm -hmm. and and that's that that is what the, these groups, these all of these really committed activists who they work their nine to five uh, job, they sometimes have the second job, they oftentimes have kids that they need to take care of, and then they go out and in that spare time, in that ample spare time, in addition, they go out and they protest or they they testify before a meeting of their local town committee or before their, their state legislature. And then they go out and protest uh, and then they go do a service project. Like the, th this is combating those, those, those vicious stereotypes about us as disengaged, as not, not involved in the day to day, mm -hmm. as arrogant, as uncaring, as all of these things. Yeah. And it, it really combats that. And that's, that's where it has to happen. It has to happen. In those interpersonal relationships, that, that space between, um, or that space where we all interact with one another on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's why we encourage people to just be unashamed, unabashed about saying who they are and what they believe and don't believe and what groups they're affiliated with, because it's, it's the single best way for us to combat those negative stereotypes. Yeah. And so for, for those listening right now, Nick, what are some things that people can do? I'd assume that maybe being more open, telling their story, joining a community, either whether it's an atheist or humanist or free thought community near them. What, what are some of the things? Yeah, the concrete things, just if you want like a 30 second, what can I do real quick? The, the first thing you can do is just go to atheists.org slash act, A-C-T, and sign up for action alerts and, and make sure that you're plugged in so that if something comes up in your community or in your state or nationally, that you're able to respond. And, th and that's like, if you have a minute, that's something you can do right now. Mm -hmm. If you have a few hours, um, look around and see if you can find a community group that you can join, uh, a group that you can be a part of. If you have more, more time than that, getting active and getting engaged in that community more broadly, identifying volunteer opportunities, going out there and, and getting active in that group. I mean, that's, that's a big, Thing that moves the needle uh, for a lot of people. 
Um, and then if you're if you're really looking to go the extra mile and there isn't a group near you, reach out to us, shoot us an email, and we'll help. We'll get you set up with some resources to start that local group, so you can provide support for all the people around you that are actively looking for that thing, and they just need one person to take that first step. And that first per- that first step can come from you. Mm. And that's it is a time investment, but it's really worth it. Uh, and it's the, the single the single greatest thing that somebody can do is is make the road easier for the next person. And so that's what I, I hope people will take that away uh, and do that in small ways every single day. Uh, that's a lot of what we a lot of what it's about. Well, Nick. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this. It's really inspiring to see people like you at the helm of American Atheists. I, I really, as I said before, I think your pragmatist and your coalition building attitude is really essential. And so thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, thanks for having me so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. All the links mentioned in this episode will be on the website, reenchantmentpod.com. Go to the show notes tab, and you'll find links and notes referenced in this episode, such as the place that you go to sign up for action alerts from American Atheists. You'll also find the secular survey that Nick was talking about, and can uh, keep track of the analysis and the updates that American Atheists are doing on that data set. And for those interested in finding a local group of non-believers to join, I'll include the Atheist website for that as well, where you can see which is the closest group to yours, and if there aren't any, how to start one yourself. Along with the show notes, you'll also find other posts and short articles, such as the 9-step baloney detection kit that Carl Sagan invented, and which I talked about in my conversation with Sasha Sagan. Once again, if you find value in this show, please consider supporting the time and energy it takes to make it possible by becoming a patron at patreon.com reenchantment. And if money isn't a way you can support right now, another way to give back is to share this episode with one person who might find it of value. If everyone shared an episode with just one new person each week, it would make a large difference and help this podcast grow and spread its message to others. Once again, thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time on Reenchantment.